Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. And we are back for episode nine, which is my last episode. Sad. So sad. <laughs> it's okay. We'll be back. But it's okay because today's topic is pretty interesting. It's on the history of the mastectomy. And this is our first episode under the topic realm of medical procedures that are specific to women. However, this procedure can be performed on men, but we chose specifically to talk about the mastectomy because it's a pretty well-known procedure that is centered around females and it has a profound impact on the patients who receive it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about and what a mastectomy is, it's a surgical procedure that removes the breast tissue from the body. But why is this procedure a thing? And who thought of chopping off breasts as a safe and effective way of care? And how do these procedures affect the women who undergo them? Well, we are here to answer all of these questions today and more, of course. But first, Alicia, as always, what do you know about the mastectomy? <laughs> All I know about the mastectomy. Like, um, I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, the classic is I know literally, literally nothing, nothing about yeah. the ma- literally nothing about the mastectomy, but that's not true. But it's mostly true. <laughs> I don't I don't know that much about the history of mastectomies. I mm-hmm. just know that typically women will get them and they usually get them as a either preventative measure or as a result of having some kind of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. That's typically the context in which I understand mastectomies. And also, I don't know if this is what they're called in this realm, but I imagine that in a um, top surgery, like That is a kind Mm -hmm. of version of a mastectomy. So for trans men, um, that's maybe something that they get. Yeah. Unsure. But that's kind of all I know about them. Yeah. I have to say the top surgery, I didn't see in my research, but there is a part I'll point out that I think would apply to that. Because there's like a specific thing you can ask your surgeon to do. Awesome. So with that, um, let's get into the episode. I'm ready. So everyone at home out there and Alicia sitting there in your bed, I want you to grab your scrubs or your skirts if that's like more your speed and some gloves because we're going to head into surgery today. The OR! (laughs) Going into the OR. But before we can begin our procedure, we need to review the patient chart to learn more, a little more about what exactly is going on today. So as baseline knowledge about the mastectomy, it is a procedure that most commonly takes place in order to remove tissue that is infected with breast cancer. So in order to look at this history properly, we must look at the history of breast cancer to understand the origin of this procedure and like why it was developed in the first place. Mm-hmm. So with that underway, we are going to head into pre-op. So in pre-op, we are going to look at why. Well, like why was the surgery even created? There had to be a reason. And this reason can be traced pretty far back into our history. And Alicia, just take like a wild guess of where the first mention of breast cancer was. Ancient Greece. You're so close. Just like a little farther back. Ancient Mesopotamia? Not that far back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ancient Egypt? Yeah, there you go. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) But yes, our two holy places of medical historical knowledge is Egypt and Greece, which is exactly where they were mentioned. So in Egypt, of course. Breast cancer is mentioned in this Egyptian surgical papyrus known as the Edwin Smith papyrus. Obviously, Edwin Smith was not some Egyptian's name, but... What? These colonizers, man, I can't. Edwin Smith papyrus was a surgical papyrus. And under this papyrus, there's a section specifically called Instructions Concerning Tumors of the Breast. And in this section... There was mentions of multiple cases that involved cancer of the breast, and in it, it stated there was no treatment options. The only Mm. treatment they really advised was cauterization, so like burning off the infected area, which, oh, God, I can't even. Like, they didn't even have lighters back then. Did they just, like, light a fire, and then you just, like, leaned over it? Like, how did that work? 
I mean, no, they probably had like a stick that they put the fire (laughs) on and like put it on you. You didn't have to like lean over the fire like a shish kebab. Like what? (laughs) Like a rotisserie chicken. Like, no. (laughs) Shish kebab. Oh, God. Okay, well, that's good. But you're going to like what they did in Greece even more. So then in Greece, okay, of course, there were like mentions of breast cancer as well. And the first evidence of this is in the temples de- dedicated to Asclepius, who I'm pretty sure we've mentioned before. But yeah, he's-, he's the god of medicine. Yes. And do you remember what the temples were? Uh, but they would, they were like baby hospitals, but they weren't hospitals. They were like, people would go there and they would sleep in the temples and like have dreams about how Asclepius could heal you. And they would also travel there and they would offer like little miniature statues of body parts they wanted to be healed. So like, oh, if your nose was broken, you would offer up this perfect stone nose to temple in hopes that Asclepius would fix your nose. So if you had breast cancer, you would offer up like a perfect stone breast. Oh, this okay. is exactly what the evidence is. They found these like stone boobs basically that were like offered <laughs> up to Sleepiest, which I think is just hilarious because I can't even imagine like taking a stone and carving a boob out of it. But <laughs> yeah, also, like, what defines the perfect boob? That's true. Know. Like, was it like circular shape? Did it have a little indent at the top? Like, what was it? What did the areola look like? I don't know. <laughs> these are questions I have. But along with these boob stones, um, Additional treatment was recommended by physicians like Hippocrates, where he Mm. offered up the explanation that breast cancer was due to the imbalance of the humors within the body. So there's four humors theory where there's black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood. And an imbalance in these four humors is what caused disease. And an overabundance of black bile, which accumulated in the liver, is what they thought attributed to cancer. And for this Mm -hmm. reason, physicians such as Galen, which we've talked about before, he was like later on, recommended releasing black bile from the body in order to cure the cancer, which I like tried to look into how to do that, but I couldn't find anything. So I just have like a lot of questions about that. Also, Galen attributed breast cancer to women who were not menstruating or had abnormal menstruation cycles. So of course, everyone. a female disease is tied to your uterus again. But one thing that these Greco-Roman physicians like did right was that they named the disease cancer. And the word cancer is based on the word, the ancient word for crab. So did you know right. why they would choose this word, Alicia? Like based on observations maybe of the tumors? They were spiky. Not spiky, but... <laughs> Okay. okay, it's close because like a crab, crabs are spiky, but the tumors are not spiky, but crabs have lots of legs and arms. So when they observe the breast, um, like superficially, not like dissecting it or anything, there was huge sprawling veins that projected from the tumors. And this looked very crab-like to them. Oh. It also looked kind of spider-like, but. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, that so, makes sense though. Yeah, so then they named the disease cancer, which really makes sense because the sign cancer in- Cancer is crab, yeah. Yeah, I always wondered that. Me too. Why the hell is it a crab? It literally means crab. So other than like naming the disease and providing the diagnosis that you have breast cancer, these physicians didn't really have any treatment option. At least not until there was one surgeon in the Greco-Roman period who proposed the possible first breast cancer surgery where he pushed for an incision in cauterization in order to completely remove the tumor. So he wasn't Mm. removing the whole breast, but he was like actually doing surgery to remove a tumor. There was also mention of Arabic doctor from Persia who also recommended removal and cauterization without a major surgery. So kind of the same thing. So we're seeing this surgery kind of start to grow as physicians across that part of the world are starting to talk about how to treat this cancer. Mm-hmm. But the recommendation from these physicians didn't really take hold. So surgery was still not the main treatment option. And really patients just kind of passed away if the cancer was caught too late and there was like nothing mm. left to do because all they would do are those superficial cauterizing or maybe once in a while doing a more extreme procedure. 
at least until the 1500s. So we just jumped like a lot of time, but nothing really happened. <laughs> nothing really happened until the 1500s because to remind everyone before the 1500s is the Renaissance period. And this 1500s is still kind of the Renaissance, but in the Renaissance is when the Catholic church came about, you know, and the church was not super into medical advancements and oh, no. like studying the human body. So there wasn't a lot of growth in fields like surgery. So that's why we're so later now. And in the 1500s, a German surgeon named William Barbary created an instrument that allowed for the mastectomy to take place. So Alicia, if you had to think of a device that would help in breast removal surgery in the 1500s, what would you imagine it was? I have two theories. One is just like a scalpel, but the other- More advanced than that. Oh, okay. Well, the other is super not okay. Probably not right. But I was imagining like a little guillotine for your boob. You know, you're not totally wrong. Really? (laughs) You stick your boob in a guillotine and then they chop it off? Okay. It's not a guillotine, like literally, but the device that he created clamps down on the breast. So it's like fixing it in place during removal. So basically, if you have to like imagine what this looks like, you know those fire poker sticks that are outside oh. the fireplace? And there's that one that is long and then you can like open and close it to grab a log because there's two like crescent moon shaped things to grab the log. It's like that. But instead of log, it's a boob. So you like clamp down on the oh. breast. So you're holding it in place and then you go at it with the scalpel and you chop it off. Oh my God. I know crazy and this was like important to the advancement of the surgery yeah Alicia's grabbing her boobs <laughs> I just can't I know no, wait don't it, be just sad, wait like babies. this was important to creating the surgery but at the same time we're in the 1500s there's no anesthesia that's the why I'm clutching my straight boobs up like awake <laughs> terrible so at this time, because there's no anesthesia, it still wasn't super popular because obviously it was not great for women. And over the next 200 years, the surgical, this method started to be developed like a little more, but there was still no anesthesia. So at this point, doctors were really just focusing on how to understand breast cancer as a disease a little bit better. Scientists- I'm confused though. Sorry. Yes. I'm no. just confused as to how, if they literally just chopped off someone's boob, how could they like recover that tissue? Right? Like how do they not just bleed out? I don't know. The, oh. the, the sources were not fantastic for this, for this history. I, I believe that. But like I said, they're trying to understand the disease a little bit better because this whole surgery thing wasn't going well for them. Yeah. So scientists at this point started to understand the lymph system, especially like how complex it was in the breast. And in the pectoral muscles, like the muscles on your chest, and how this contributed to the rapid progression of the disease. Lymph accompanies all the veins in your body and like helps carry stuff that wouldn't usually be in your veins around your body. And there's a ton of them in the breast. So with breast cancer, the cancer cells can get into the lymph and then that can easily spread throughout your body through the lymph system. Right. Because your lymph is like where your macrophages and your like immune cells, a lot of your immune cells are. Yeah. So that makes sense that they have to get everywhere. Yeah, exactly. You have like viruses and germs everywhere. Mm -hmm. In the breast, we're trying to like feed your child healthy Right. You need like antibodies and stuff to give to your baby. Yeah. And those are all made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when they figured this out and like cancer in the breast gets into the lymph, it starts to go throughout the body, gets into your muscles behind the breast. They started figuring like, wow, this is a bigger disease than just having a tumor on your boob, you know? Mm-hmm. So because of this advancement in knowledge around the disease, they were able to advance the surgical method of the mastectomy. So specifically, a surgeon by the name of Jean Petit recommended the removal of the breast, the pectoral muscle, and all of the oh. your armpit. So the surgery was massive. Like it literally disfigured your chest wall because yeah. you were removing like everything. And because of that, it had a really high mortality and a really high morbidity rate still. So either like patients died or they did not have a great life afterwards and had a lot of complications. 
So the surgery had advanced and they kind of figured out how to stop the breast cancer. Cause if you remove all that stuff early enough, it's not going to spread anymore. There's nothing there anymore for it to spread to. Right. But it wasn't great. Like it wasn't great for the women or for the patient. So it was still like a relatively uncommon procedure. And it wasn't until 1804 that the mastectomy was truly performed and it was under anesthesia finally. So now women don't have to go through the pain of having their boobs chopped off. And this is thanks to a Japanese surgeon who created an effective anesthesia technique based on ancient Chinese medicine. So he literally like studied ancient Chinese medicine and was like, wow, this physician was doing some pretty cool stuff with plants. I'm gonna try that and created an effective anesthesia technique. So now the surgery could be done in a safer way. The surgery continues to develop over time, but still in the next 10 years or so, it had pretty high mortality rates still of around 10%. So not many surgeons wanted to do it particularly because of the risks that it posed their patients. Mm-hmm. And over the next 100 years, surgeons continued to develop techniques for how to properly carry out the mastectomy. And they were kind of all over the place. Some would only remove the armpit area. Some went for that entire removal of the breast and the chest muscles. And some just would like completely disregarded surgery, said it wasn't an option. So there wasn't really any clear advancements in the development of this field because no one was truly working together or doing like real research techniques with it. Mm. At least until William Halstead. And Dr. Halstead published an article in the John Hopkins scientific paper outlining how to do a radical mastectomy, aka what we just talked about, with like where you remove a bunch of muscles, the breast tissue, the lymph nodes, all of that. Like I said, we already talked about it. So how is this any different? Like patients were dying right. when we did this before. But what was special about this publication is that it was actually like well-studied. He had done the procedure. Mm. He talked to patients, got patients' perspectives on how it went and if they liked it. And was really like developing a clear method where he published the paper and it said how to do this in like a safe and effective way. So after this publication was released, major hospitals began performing the surgery and it, it is now known as the Halstead radical mastectomy, which is still done today, but really in extreme cases to like remove that much of your chest. So this is when the mastectomy took off. And from this one study, surgeons began to grow this procedure to fit the need of the patient. One surgeon found a way to keep the pec major muscle intact and even carried out small lesions allowing for smaller surgical treatments. And since the early 1900s, when this field took off, it's grown to a diverse surgical procedure that is saving lives every day. So at this point, we have our patient history down. We know how our procedure has come to be. And we are scrubbed in and ready to move into part two of our story in the operating room. Like I said, we have some base knowledge now on this procedure. So we can do a quick overview of what it's like in modern medicine. Like I said before, mastectomies are carried out on breast cancer patients, or it's carried out on patients who are at great risk for developing cancer, which I think you mentioned like in the beginning that people who are at risk for cancer can also preemptively have a mastectomy. And this is called a prophylactic mastectomy, where they remove mm-hmm. all the breast tissue from both breasts. And these patients will face the same like post-operative care that we'll talk about in a little bit to those who have mastectomies because of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So that is like, if you have a bunch of family members who have breast cancer and you know, like the likelihood of you having, it's kind of high, like that's something that people would usually go through. So if you do have breast cancer though, and you choose to have a mastectomy as your mode of treatment because you could also do chemotherapy, you could do radiation, you could do a combination of the three. If you choose to do a mastectomy, there are a handful of options for you on what you could do here. So one, you could do that radical mastectomy that I mentioned before. The next step would be a total mastectomy, it's called, which is the most common one you'd probably think of. It involves the removal of all breast tissue, the lymph, the skin, and the nipple. And it's most commonly done for like more advanced stages of breast cancer where the tumors are pretty large and you just like need to remove the entire breast. The next step would be a skin sparing mastectomy that removes all the breast tissue in the lymph and the nipple, but not the patient's skin. So it allows for breast reconstruction to take place after surgery. So this would be like for breast cancer patients who like still have breasts, but they don't have nipple, like that would be this mastectomy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
So like the skin is still there, that you're able to fill it in and like reconstruct the breast. Yeah, with like silicone or something. Yeah, but you have to remove the nipple because if you, like the anatomy of the breast has all the lymph and has all the mammary glands and everything like, yeah, yeah like go all up to the nipples. So you got to remove that whole structure basically. Mm. Um, but you can keep the skin to do that reconstruction. And then lastly, there's a surgery called the nipple sparing mastectomy. Um, where the nipple, the areola around it, and the skin are all preserved. So the only thing being taken out is the tissue and the lymph nodes. And this procedure like allows for like an immediate reconstruction. You still have all the superficial breast tissue that you would see on the outside, just mm. not be there on the inside. So for each of these surgeries, the breast tissue and the lymph nodes are removed and sent to the lab for analysis. Either one or both of the breasts can be removed. And then depending on the patient's wishes, a plastic surgeon may be on standby to perform the reconstruction like directly after the breast removal. Mm. However, like reconstruction isn't an option for all women or they just may not want to have one. So if a woman's undergoing radiation treatment as well, it might not be like the right time to get a reconstruction. So in the surgery, they could place something called a tissue expander in the breast. So it holds that tissue that they left there in place so that later on you can get a reconstruction and still have like your own skin. But now our patient is out of surgery and we are ready to do some post-op work, meaning that life after the breast removal. Breast removal, before we like talk to the mastectomy side, I wanted to mention that it's really not like a new and innovative idea for women because up until the Renaissance, there were legends of women removing their breasts. Alicia, do you know any of these legends? And there are two as your hint that I could find. There might be more. I don't know. We literally talked no, about No, <laughs> what? We did? <laughs> it's okay. I don't know. Is it the Amazons? It is the Amazons. <laughs> oh, is it really? <laughs> so there's the story of the Amazon women. You might be thinking, oh, like Wonder Woman. Like there's that island of women. They all live there and they all like fight. It's like kind of that, but not really. It's a Greek myth. It's a debate if these women were actually real. They probably weren't. But it was a community of women in Greek mythology who were thought to be very independent and strong and warrior-like. And because there were all these things that Greek women were like not allowed to be by society, they were also viewed as like man-hating. Point of this to our story is that some legends say that they cut off their right breast to have more mobility when fighting. Because if you're like right-handed, you know, your boob really gets in the way when you do that like swing of the arm. So if you remove it, you just chop it off. It's not even in the way anymore. It's genius, really. I don't know why we all don't do it. <laughs> Come over, I'll do it right now. Yeah, it's really easy. We got this. I have a guillotine. <laughs> a boob guillotine. But the other story, this like legend of chopping off breasts, is a woman named uh, Nangali, I think. Maybe. Well, she's from this town in India. And I don't know if she was real or not, but in this town in India, the land tax was very low. So the government of the area would try to make up for it by taxing other things. Like they would tax men's mustaches. They would tax like fishing nets and they would tax women's breasts. (laughs) The tax were based on like the shape and dimensions of the breast. What the heck? I know. It's like they taxed men's mustaches, but you could just like chop that boy off. And right. like, you don't have to pay a tax on it. So this woman was like, I'm going to do just that. So when the government came around to collect her breast tax, legend says that she went into her house and returned with her bloody breast in her hand and then put it in the <gasps> collector's hand and was like, here oh you go. God. Here's your breast tax. <laughs> so That's savage. savage. So for both of these stories, these are stories of breast removal that were done like by the women. They were choosing to do this. It was an act of freedom or like advocacy for women. But it was like, like I said, something they chose to do, which isn't exactly the case for breast removal due to cancer. First off, cancer feels like your body's betraying you. It's literally your own cells changing and then like trying to kill you. And then on top of that, you're losing your breasts, which are a common symbol of femininity. So, like, where does this leave women in this post-operative phase? Is it empowering, like, the Amazons and Nangali? Well, trying to understand the emotions and decisions faced after mastectomy, it's important to, like, briefly talk about the breast as a symbol. On one hand, 
the breast is a symbol of motherhood and the ability to care for and nourish your child. And then on the other hand, it is like a sexualized symbol. It's one that is used to criticize women for how they dress or how they look. Yeah. In general, a symbol of beauty and femininity. So like no matter what way you look at it, there are numerous ideas around what breasts mean in the general scheme of what it means to be a woman. What does this mean to women whose breasts have betrayed them and have lost them? Like, how do they cope with these ideals? This is like a really hard question to answer, I think. And like, I haven't gotten a mastectomy, so I don't even know the emotions that these women go through. But based on my research, these women are extremely affected by their new appearance and have a really hard time connecting with their femininity and their attractiveness. They can experience negative emotions within their sex lives because they might fear that their partner thinks of them as like lesser or like less attractive mm-hmm. without their breasts. The survivors can struggle with their body image. Sometimes they hate their scars. They hate like seeing them mm-hmm. or they hate seeing themselves naked. So it's like very difficult time for women, both mentally and physically. And these women often struggle with depression and seek out counseling to go through this post-operative process. But when it comes to the body and like the actual scars in the breast, there are a couple of routes of action they can take that I want to talk about. So the first option is you can get reconstructive surgery via plastic surgery, which I mentioned before, like you can have your mastectomy and then you have the reconstruction right after, or you can have it also down the line. This is a decision like you have to make. You're not just like, oh, time to get reconstructive surgery right after. It's a whole decision process. And it's kind of a big decision because there's a lot of stigma around boob jobs. Like even if it's post mastectomy, there's still stigma around plastic surgery. The survivors mm-hmm. are at risk of societal abuse, saying that they value their appearance over just like the fact that they're alive. So instead of just appreciating that they're still here, they're like, no, I need my boobs back. And some people look down on them for that. Or others may think that the survivor is just trying to forget their fight by reverting to the precancer body. Which even if that is true, like that's that patient's choice. But I think the hardest part in deciding on this reconstructive surgery may be the mental fight of like, if I choose to get the surgery and get breasts back, am I just conforming to societal pressures around femininity? Or does it feel like I'm conforming to what men want or just conforming to what's comfortable instead of choosing what it means to be feminine in your own way? None of these are true or false, but they're just like a lot of questions that women may face when making this decision. But according to the University of Michigan study, 40% of women do get reconstructive surgery after their mastectomy. Mm -hmm. So when they get this procedure done, there's a couple of different things that they can do. You can either have fat move from your abdomen to the breast. So you still have breasts that are your own tissue and like you still feel like they're a part of themselves or you can get implants done. And there's like a lot of different ways that you can have more like of a traditional boob job. That's more of like a plastic surgery thing. There's lots of options for how you can get this reconstruction. However, both of them have their own complications. So it's kind of just like whatever option the woman wants for her own body is the way the reconstruction will be done. Mm -hmm. But I did want to mention this one study I read that was kind of interesting. It talked about how when they studied around 200 women who had mastectomies, the patients who chose reconstruction had lower rates of sexual activity and felt that breast cancer had an even greater negative impact on their sex life. Oh, interesting. Right? Super interesting. And one thing was saying that they think it might be because when you have the reconstructive surgery, like you're in the hospital for longer or your recovery time is longer because you have two surgeries added up. Like you're away from your regular life for longer. So it's just like more time to be sitting in your thoughts and like dealing with cancer as my life instead of starting to like rebuild. Because of this reason, this might contribute to the lower quality of life after reconstruction. So the article like said for this reason, patients um, who received reconstruction more about like five to 10 years after being cancer free had higher rates of quality of life because they had already gone through the whole like fight of cancer. And then they were able to move on to the next step of reclaiming their body in whatever way they wanted to, instead of just doing it all at once. So I just thought Mm -hmm. that was very interesting because not only do women have to choose if they want to have reconstruction or not, they might be decisions going into 
when exactly to do it and like when will this be right for me and like how how will this affect my mental health but for the women who choose not to get reconstructive surgery they may choose to just keep their scars and have their scars this option comes from a lot of decisions as well so maybe the thought of going back into surgery again is too traumatic for the survivor so the same thing with like having lower quality of life after that might be these patients or they might have other health issues that would create complications in reconstructive surgery, such as like heart issues, or the woman just might choose that they believe their scars tell their story and are at their chance to reclaim their post-cancer body by keeping them. But no matter what their reason is, choosing to be flat is difficult because it feels like a piece of your body might be missing. Um, but it also is a chance for women to wear their scar as a symbol of rejecting societal ideas of femininity and kind of like creating their own space to be feminine. And this one I think is pretty cool, is that it's really common for women to get mastectomy tattoos, which allow women to create a personal oh, yeah. image in place of their breasts. Yeah, which is really cool. So I'm Googling them. And you could either be completely flat and have a tattoo like in place of your breasts, or sometimes you'll have those mastectomies that might leave like a little skin behind or like a little fat will be put in the breast, but maybe you don't have a nipple or something. So then you'll get like a tattoo. Oh my gosh, this is gorgeous. I'm looking at them now and they're so cool. Aren't they so cool? Yeah. Um, Women can also get a nipple tattoo, but those are done by doctors apparently. It's not a tattoo artist. It's a procedure. You like listeners should look up the mastectomy tattoos because they are really cool. And there's no one tattoo. It's just whatever tattoo you want, but it's on your Mm. boobs as a way to beautify your body again if having reconstructions maybe not like the choice you want to go with. And then additionally, while researching why women might choose to go flat, I found this website that was really interesting. And it talked about how patients who know they want to be flat after mastectomy can specifically ask their surgeon for an aesthetic flat closure to ensure that they have a smooth flat chest because apparently that's just not like not what surgeons do as default which I guess oh what kind of makes sense because if you want reconstructive surgery like might need some skin left over but usually surgeons it seems don't do a clean flat closure they might just be assuming that the woman wants to undergo reconstructive surgery later so they leave Mm. some skin behind or they might just be in a rush to remove the breast tissues. Then they're not really like considering the woman's body image during the surgery. They're just like, you know, going in, get the cancer out, leave without really thinking about, okay, well, this woman's body is now like disfigured to what she would consider as like her normal body. And you just left it with like this weird, like flap of skin. And you can see mm. in the difference between like an aesthetic flat closure and just like a regular closure, like how different it is. An aesthetic flat closure is what I'm thinking you would do in like a top surgery because it's completely mm. flat and it just has the scar and you can get your scars. You can ask for them, I think, in different ways. They might be slanted a certain way and they might have different shapes or whatever. So it's like appealing to you, but I assuming that's what they would do for a top surgery because it's completely moving it. There's no breast fat or anything. It's just flat chested. Right. Which some um, breast cancer patients may choose, which is their choice. Um, But yeah, so the decision for what to do in this post-operative phase is a difficult one, but also be really empowering because these women are making a decision of how they want their body to look after their body just betrayed them. And this idea of all these different ways to be empowered after mastectomy has been shown through art projects. And one is called the Scar Project, which showed photographs of women with their scars or reconstructions. And just like how empowered they felt by their decision with overall breast cancer and the advanced procedure of mastectomy is extremely difficult to live through. Like women are lucky to have the procedure as an option compared to women of the past. But that's not to say that the post-operative life is an easy one. There's just a lot going on for these women and it's all wrapped into this one procedure of the mastectomy. So because of that, I think we need to talk about this. Don't you think, Felicia? Absolutely. So after going through that whole operative phase, 
days. We went through pre-op and we did the whole surgery. And then we saw what our patients went through in the post-op phase. But now we're going to talk about that and what that means to women in medicine or women undergoing medical procedures. So from all of that, what do you think of the history of the mastectomy? And do you think that like in the development of this procedure, that they considered the wants and needs of the women who were undergoing this procedure? And do you think like this has changed at all today as well? I mean, my first thought after this long OR journey is that I like need a sandwich or something. I have been standing for hours. I need food. What kind of sandwich? A club sandwich. (laughs) I'm so excited when you said that. I love club sandwiches. Oh my God. But I think in terms of the history, I really enjoyed hearing about the ancient history, even though I know that we jumped really far forward between those points but it is interesting to know especially that thing about cancer and the etymology of cancer and the name of it um i just think that's fascinating that you know the name for cancer like stemmed from breast cancer right? and then probably other cancers but like really breast cancer I so i thought scary. that was fascinating And then I think in general, in terms of the actual history, what I found striking in terms of the actual procedure and the development of the procedure, I don't think women's wants were factored in until pretty recently, honestly, Mm -hmm. because just based on your history, I mean, having a little boob guillotine that's basically killing women is doesn't sound like the women's desires were being considered whatsoever. Yeah, it doesn't and sound very comfortable or like no, the kind of treatment I would want. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting just what you were saying about how surgeons don't always do the surgery in a certain way, like to make the chest completely flat, if that's what the woman wants, and how like sometimes they'll rush through the surgery which I know happens, but isn't okay. Obviously, that's not okay. Yeah. So I think those are the things that were really striking to me. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that plastic surgeons are getting better or are better, but I don't know if that's true. And I'm not yeah. going to make excuses for anyone. Yeah. And I was like surprised looking into the choosing to be flat and how are these conversations that the surgeons have with the patients before the surgery, like, do they have like an in-depth conversation of like, do you want reconstruction? Do you want to be flat? Or is it just like, oh, we'll figure this out later. I feel like it should be like a big part of the pre-op care. Oh, I agree. When you were saying that they, the doctors would sometimes, um, you know, leave the chest looking a certain way because they assumed that the woman would want something. I was like, no, you are putting your own morality and thoughts and ideas on this person in the OR when they have actually no power. And that's truly unacceptable. I agree. And in the website that was talking about like how you have to ask your surgeon for this like specific closure. It was literally like a step-by-step guide of how to do it. It was like, tell your surgeon you want this exact word and then have your surgeon repeat back to you what you want. (gasps) Why does this conversation have to be outlined for the patient to bring up right what is that is just a insane level of specific health desires that no patient who is literally undergoing a cancer treatment or like a prophylactic surgery is going to be wanting to think about like that is not on them we look to physicians to be people who guide our medical choices and as much as i love that people take agency over their own lives and their medical well-being that doesn't mean that physicians have just lost this pillar that they exist on and I acknowledge Mm -hmm. that there is definitely a pillar that they exist on and going into that profession means you have to honor that pillar Mm -hmm. and I just find it astounding that these surgeons sometimes won't you know take that into consideration yeah 
It's crazy. Also talked about how there'll be like botched cases of a flat closure and how women will be like really ashamed of how their post-mastectomy scars look because they just were truly done badly. And you might have to mm. go in and have another surgery for a plastic surgeon just to fix your scar, oh not to have a breast reconstruction, just to like straight up fix the mastectomy scar to look more normal. So then you have to go through another surgery again to not even regain your breast or anything, just to have a normal looking scar that you should have gotten the first time. Why are you rushing a surgery? You don't want scars to look abnormal. It's going to be a constant reminder of that painful time in the patient's life. Why would you not work as hard as you can to maintain the body image that patient wants or whatever they right. need. Isn't that the whole point of plastics? Well, I don't know if it's always the plastic surgeon either because the mm. mastectomy is done by, I think, a general surgeon who oh. does like breast cancer removal. And then the plastic surgeon will come in and do reconstructive surgery oh. or like whatever that is, like tag team because within plastics, I don't know the different specialties, but like my roommate wants to do plastics and she wants to do reconstructive plastic surgery. So like specifically for breast cancer patients or for like amputees and things like that. And so I don't know who would do like the initial closure. If you were having like that flat surgery, I don't know if the plastic surgeon would come in and make sure that the scars were really good or if it's like the general surgeon doing it. Moving on to post-surgery. So post-operatively, what are the different reactions that women can have, I guess, to this post-operative phase on how they view their own femininity. Is it internalized misogyny to want reconstruction or is it reclaiming your power to say that like you want breasts and you want that to be a part of like what it means to you to be feminine? Or what about choosing to not reconstruct? Like what does all of these decisions that go into this post-operative phase tell us about the interaction between the societal views of femininity or our personal views of femininity? Yeah, I think that's a complicated question because, of course, it's not just one or the other. Nothing is. And so the way I kind of was thinking about it is the woman doing what's best for her in the moment of her having to decide. Mm -hmm. Because even if down the line, she wishes she had made a different decision in the moment of her making that decision. She doesn't know what this future her is going to feel. Right. And also, I just think women are so resilient and powerful that yes, okay, a lot of outcomes might not be the way that they want. Like maybe they get reconstructive surgery and wish they hadn't or vice Mm -hmm. versa. I still think like you do your best to try and cope with the like with the situations you're in and that mm-hmm. is resilience and i feel like that's what women survivors are able to do or at yeah. least try their best and of course it's not a foolproof like this fully assured option or outcome but i feel like there is a level of internalized misogyny that comes with a lot of decisions that we make. But the thing mm-hmm. is, is we don't necessarily see it as internalized misogyny. Mm-hmm. And so whatever decision you make, that's valid for you, for example. And I think there's a lot of complicated things that come with that. What are your specific chances of having, you know, a certain outcome or mm-hmm. how advanced is your cancer? Or are you having prophylactic surgery? In that case, that might change your decisions about whether to get reconstruction or not. I totally understand that. And I was just thinking for myself, like, I don't know what I would do in this situation. I have never had breast cancer, but I personally, something I really value is like my hair. I really like my hair. You do. You've talked about it before on the podcast. (laughs) And so I remember something you said is like, oh, would you choose chemo, radiation, surgery, or a combination? And like, what are your options? I think I would choose to get a mastectomy if that meant I didn't have to go through chemo and radiation. Mm -hmm. Like if I could be sure that getting a mastectomy would lead to me not having to have those other two things. Cause I just also recently learned about like a ton of chemo drugs and they Mm -hmm. just like do a number on your body. And yeah, I, they're like, yeah, they are. Yeah. I would be more willing to give up a boob or both boobs than like to give up all of the like fast growing cells 
that would die mm. in my body because of chemo or radiation. Right. I agree in that the choice the woman makes that also applies to what it means to be feminine, whatever you make of it. If you think that having boobs makes you feel more feminine, then, then people may say that's internalized misogyny. But like, even if it is, you said that's your choice to be like, I still want boob. Right. I still yeah. believe that this is what makes me feel whole and like what makes me feel like powered and feminine. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or maybe you're just, I don't want boob. They get in the way like the Amazons. Like, I'm gonna just mm. go with the flat chest, take my scars with pride kind of thing. Up to you. And it's hard because like society has all these views of what breasts mean to women. And then on top of that, breasts are given so much value in women as being the motherly component or like the sexualized thing. But at the same time, if you get a boob job, then you're like looked down on for wanting nice breasts. And it's like, but you were just saying that I need these to do this. And now you're ridiculing me for wanting that. Women are faced with that in general. And then you throw having a mastectomy into the mix and it really confuses everything. And it really comes down to, yeah, you're right. To whatever like the woman wants in that moment, because there's so many different factors that I think she's facing with the decision that the one thing that's gonna like really help is like okay what do I want like who cares what other people want like I do kind of think that no matter what your choice is you are reclaiming your power of like your body image and what you want your body to look like just because your breasts were taken away from you because of a disease doesn't mean that you are like belittled out by your body you are still in control of your body and whatever decision you make post mastectomy is you reclaiming your power over your body and like taking your body back. So there's not like that dissociation with body isn't me anymore because it is. You chose now what you want it to be even like after the terrible thing you just had to go through. I'm with you. I totally agree. I was going to bring up two quick things. One is that Mm -hmm. I also think support groups are really important Mm -hmm. in like making decisions. I feel like I would love to talk with people who have made different choices and seeing why and how they made those choices um, and what influenced those decisions. Mm -hmm. And then I was also going to say that I did want to acknowledge that, you know, maybe the way we're thinking about this is coming from a certain lens. But of course, there's a lot of sociocultural factors, and like financial Mm -hmm. factors that play into all of these decisions. And so just acknowledging those and how those can be really difficult. And even beyond like internalized misogyny, the misogynistic and patriarchal systems that we live in and live within Um, Mm -hmm. do play a major role in choices that women make. But I think still coming down to the root of it, which is like, what does that woman do in that moment in which she has to make or take time to make a decision about her body? And it's her doing that within the confines of like her situation and coming Mm -hmm. out of that feeling as best as she can, which is what we're all trying to do. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the different lens thing because that reminds me of something I saw that lesbian women often face with even like more questions of what they should do after mastectomies because maybe other people in the LGBTQ community might questioning like, why are you getting breasts again? Those are just like more questions that lesbian women or just like women of different sexual orientations or whatever area that you're in in your life, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different questions that go into like every single patient undergoing this surgery. Yeah. And I think as physicians, we just need to really key into those things and be open to having conversations about those and, you know, having like humility and compassion and just meeting patients where they are, which I know is like such an easy thing to just throw around and say, but Mm -hmm. I think, you know, being mindful of that, at least you and I and our listeners who are going into medicine or going into any field in which we're serving others, if that's what you're doing, like, just really being mindful and keeping your compassion and empathy about you. Yeah. And with that, you kind of almost answered my last question. If you were faced with a patient or like someone you're serving, if you're not in healthcare, who was considering a mastectomy and was worried about whether to choose reconstruction or not, like how would you advise them? I think you kind of just answered that too. And that just like talking to the patient about what is your situation? Like, what do you feel would be right for you after this? And saying like, there is no right or wrong answer. I feel like it's the best way to go about it. And I think it's hard for sure. Like having those discussions is difficult, but I think coming at it from a way of presenting them with all of their, all of the possible options, laying out all of the complication risks and percentages Mm -hmm. clearly, and, you know, really conveying to them that you're going to be supportive of their decision 
um, and connect them with resources and just being there with them. I think I keep mentioning compassion. It's because my amazing friend, Trisha was telling me about a researcher that she like knows or knows of who talks about how we talk about empathy a lot. And I love empathy. You know, I love, I talk about empathy all the time. You know, empathy is okay. I'm going to meet you where you are because your emotions are something that I like have felt before, but just not Mm -hmm. in the situation you've, you are experiencing. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's so valid and so important and I'm so here for it. But Trisha is telling me that like compassion comes from this place of, I can't understand what you're going through because I've never been in this situation, but I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. And that kind of feeling is not something that you lose over time. Whereas empathy, right. you can experience empathy fatigue. That's a thing. But compassion, you can still like lose some senses of compassion, but it's more of just being there and being available to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think means a lot more. Yeah, like I think with compassion, you're showing to someone that you're there for them with not really like personal stake in it. Because a lot of times people interested in field be helping certain people because they've gone through that same experience before. So they have that empathy for that individual. But to just be there for someone because you have like compassion for them, Mm -hmm. like that's, I agree, is different. Um, Yeah. Do you have any last thoughts, Alicia? For my my last episode of the season. Oh no! I love your episodes. I oh, love learning you. from you. I always take these lessons and take them with me, and they're always so relevant in my life, especially now. Even though I'm not in clinic, it really helps to ground me in the kind of work that I want to do and the kind of physician that I want to be. Thank yeah. you. Welcome. All right. Well, thank you, Charlotte. We love your episodes. We and um, listeners, if you love listening to Charlotte tell me about histories that I know nothing about, you should <laughs> literally nothing. <laughs> literally nothing. You should subscribe on whatever podcasting app you listen on, and if you can, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's the best place for that. We really love reading your reviews and seeing your ratings. They truly help so much. Mm -hmm. But if you don't want to do that, which we would really love for you to do that. But if you don't want to do that, (laughs) you can tell a friend. Yeah, you know, but it really only takes two seconds. But (laughs) if you do want to support us, um, just tell a friend or family member about us and maybe they'll check us out. And maybe after telling your friend and family member about us, you can point them to our social media, which is at From Scrubs to Scrubs on Instagram and Facebook, where we post like weekly about our episodes and maybe some updates and like information on upcoming episodes and all that. So just to keep updated on us. And also you can check out our website, which has even more information than like who Alicia and I are. It has our show notes. It has our sources. It has all the fun stuff about all the episodes we have done up to this point. Yes. And with that, I want to just end our episode as we always do by giving a shout out to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay. Yay. All right. See you next time. See you next time.